1: Police on the EuroCity 196 train are always on guard, extra vigilant and extra suspicious. And the night of September 29th, 2010, was no different. Police spotted a passenger, a white-haired elderly man who had caught their eye. He seemed kind of nervous. If it were any other train heading to any other destination, they might not have given him a second look. But the 196 is what everyone calls the Black Market Express. It's the train that runs between the German city of Munich and the Swiss capital of Zurich. Swiss banking and privacy laws make it the country of choice for hiding money. So, customs police know to keep their eyes open for passengers trying to smuggle cash the police walked over to the elderly man and asked him a few routine questions. He started to sweat. When they searched him, they found 9,000 euros in cash. If you carry anything over 10,000 euros, you have to declare it.
2: It was legally okay, but they just thought that was kind of weird.
1: They couldn't hold him, but the encounter left them unsettled. So they took his name, Cornelius Gurlit. When they got back to their office, they did a quick search. And that's when things got even weirder.
2: In a bureaucratic sense, he just didn't exist. Like, he had never had a job. He wasn't in the healthcare system, which everyone's registered in. He was just a ghost, basically.
1: The little information they could gather revealed Cornelius Gerlitt was born in Germany and lived there for all of his 78 years. Beyond that, he barely left a trace. There were no income tax records, no employment history, no sign of him in the national health system. The apartment where he lived in Schwabing, a fashionable neighbourhood in Munich, was registered in his mother's name, 45 years after her death. Clearly, this man wanted to stay under the radar. And as the police dug deeper, it became obvious why. His last name, Gerlit, led to a sinister family history and a shocking connection to Germany's darkest chapter. Cornelius Gerlit’s father, Hildebrand, was an art dealer for the Nazis. A man responsible for thousands of plundered artworks, many of which were delivered straight to Adolf Hitler. A combination of this discovery and the fact that Cornelius seemed never to have paid any income tax, led to a raid on his apartment. Investigators went in with the idea they were looking for files and documents that would explain his mysterious life. What they found was way bigger. There, inside Cornelius Gerlitz's dusty apartment, was a treasure trove of art that hadn't been seen since World War II. His Munich apartment looked like an art world crime scene. Hundreds of drawings piled up like old newspapers. Oil paintings removed from their frames. Masterpieces hidden in closets and suitcases. There was a Chagall locked inside a wooden cabinet and a Matisse rolled up and stored in a tomato crate in the kitchen. This surprising discovery opened Pandora's box, caused a worldwide sensation and thrust unresolved issues surrounding Nazi-looted art out into the open. Hi, I'm Ben Lewis. Welcome to art Bust. Scandalous stories of the art world. I've been writing and making films about art for over 20 years. The art world isn't just high culture, big money and creative genius. In this series, we uncover the ugliest crimes, the biggest scandals and the murky in-between. And today's story? Well, it's utterly appalling. An art crime connected to the greatest atrocity of modern times, the Holocaust. Masterpieces plundered under the Nazi regime suddenly rediscovered. Families battling to recover their looted art, lost since the war and the failure of modern governments to treat Nazi art crimes seriously and urgently. Nazi Germany isn't ancient history. It's just a generation or two away. I find myself thinking about my own family. On my mother's side, they were Jews living in Berlin in the 30s. At least 13 of them, great-grandparents, great-aunts and uncles, their partners and children, were murdered in the Holocaust, some in Auschwitz and Chelmno, others in the forests outside Riga. I'm alive because my grandmother, at 18 years of age, escaped to Cape Town on one of the last boats out of Hamburg. Most of the people
3: had their lives stolen from them, their artworks, their furniture, their toothbrushes even, reused by German people.
1: I mean, from
3: the smallest object to the most valuable you can imagine.
1: Susan Ronald spent years researching the Gurlitt story for her book, Hitler's Art Thief.
3: The Gurlitt story matters because it's all about people's lives which were stolen. It's about murder, in the name of art.
1: She estimates the scale of Nazi looting to be upwards of 600,000 paintings. Many have been recovered, but 100,000 are still missing. In the chaos of World War II, a lot of art was likely destroyed. Some of it also disappeared behind the Iron Curtain. But many pieces remained in the hands of highly placed Nazis and their co-conspirators secreted away in salt mines, Swiss bank vaults, and even private homes.
3: 100,000 paintings. That's incredible.
1: And Cornelius Gerlitz's father, Hildebrand Gerlitz, was responsible for many of those looted pieces. As one of Adolf Hitler's four authorised art dealers, he was part of a tiny gang of influential men who had almost unlimited power to plunder art for the Nazis. It was an unsavory job, but Hildebrand Gerlitt was very good at it.
2: Hildebrand Gerlitt is a tricky character who only became more fascinating the trickier you learned him to be.
1: That's Mary Lane. She wrote a book about this story called Hitler's Last Hostages.
2: He's sort of a classic good guy turned bad.
1: Hildebrand came from a highly cultured family in Dresden. His grandfather was a prominent landscape painter. Hildebrand started out as a champion of art. As a young man, he was an ambitious director of a provincial museum in Zwickau, shaking things up by adding modern art to the collection. Then the Nazis came to power.
3: I think he was quite a chameleon, Um, and, and in some respects... To survive
1: in Germany, you had to be. The Nazis despised modern art. They called it degenerate. And Hildebrand lost his museum job because of his support of modern artists. He also had a Jewish grandmother, and any Jewish blood was suspect in Nazi Germany. Still, Hildebrand managed to transform himself into a useful tool for Nazi plunder. He was highly knowledgeable about art and worked hard to ingratiate himself with a new regime, even while he was playing them for his own ends.
3: He was definitely a thief. He came to it late in life, but he was a natural. He even stole from Hitler.
1: Susan Ronald spent months in French and German archives researching the mysterious hildebrand Gerlit
3: I reckon, personally, at the end of the war, Hildebrand probably had 2,500 to 3,000 works of art. If, if I had to hazard a guess as to what his earnings were in today's money, probably around four to $500 million.
1: By any measure, Hildebrand Gerlitt ended the war a very wealthy man. He seemed to get away with it at least during his lifetime. Although he did catch the eye of the legendary Monuments Men, celebrated by George Clooney in his Hollywood film of the same name. These were young art historians and lawyers dispatched to secure Europe's treasures in the wake of the war, and they interrogated Hildebrand over the course of three days. Hildebrand's perverse defence? His grandmother was Jewish. He was a victim, not a perpetrator, Given the amount of art he had in his possession, his interrogators were suspicious. But in the end, the Allies had other priorities and they let him go.
2: Their priority was prosecuting people who actually committed murders and genocide. And the dirty reality was that there were so many people who did that, that they were, you know, most of them were going to get away with it, that there was, there was little time left for thinking about art.
1: In the years after the war, Hildebrand settled in Dusseldorf and became the director of the Art Association for Rhineland and Westphalia, from Nazi plunderer to pillar of the art establishment, until his death in 1956. And then, the story of Hitler's art thief went cold. Until his son, Cornelius, took that evening train from Zurich to Munich and caught the attention of the German customs police. When investigators eventually battered down Cornelius Gerlitz's door in 2012 and discovered a vast collection of art that had been hidden away since World War II. In February 2013, the news of the Gerlitt Raid shocked the world. Finally tonight, the secret had been kept since World War II inside an apartment in Germany hidden behind a wall
2: in the apartment of an elderly man. Fifteen hundred works of art by Picasso,
4: Matisse, Renoir, many others. The collection has a potential value of more than 1.3 billion dollars. Still to be determined is who ultimately will
0: have the rights to all the paintings.
1: The sheer size of the collection, over 1,500 pieces, and the fact that it was discovered in the home of a mysterious recluse with a direct connection to Germany's Nazi past, Well, it was made for headline news.
2: I was actually in New York City uh, in November 2013 when I got a call at 4am from one of my Berlin-based editors.
1: When the news broke, Mary Lane was chief European art reporter for the Wall Street Journal.
2: It was immediately apparent that I needed to get on the first plane back to Berlin.
1: Worldwide interest was intense, here was a hoard of art collected by one of Hitler's most notorious art dealers, concealed for over 70 years. Questions swirled around the provenance of the art and what portion of it was looted from persecuted Jewish families. I'm Kareem Maddox, and I've been playing basketball since I was four years old. This year, I'm training for the Tokyo Olympics and wondering what it means to be an Olympian.
5: We didn't want to be used as some sort of political tool.
1: And what the Olympics mean to all of us.
4: If one of us can win a gold, then it will mean a lot
0: to the people all over the world.
1: Because the Olympics have always been about more than just sports.
0: I do think that I achieved my greatness here.
1: Subscribe to The Greatness with Kareem Maddox. That's me, produced by USG Audio and Transmitter Media.
0: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. visit carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be convenient comfortable ah
4: picasso became my father's godfather and my father's birth certificate is countersigned and it just says pablo picasso painter
1: marianne rosenberg is a fourth generation art dealer in new york city her grandfather, Paul Rosenberg, was a French-Jewish dealer at the forefront of modern art. He represented some of the greats of the 20th century, like Pablo Picasso, George Brack, and significantly for our story, Henri Matisse.
4: Well, Matisse came into uh, my grandfather's life a little bit later. He came in in 1936, and they had an extraordinary relationship.
1: Paul owned a legendary art gallery in Paris.
4: There are photographs of the exhibitions where the wall is, you know, one Matisse after another, uh, which is, you know, a bit staggering to look at. In
1: 1940, France fell to the Nazis. Paul was forced to close up shop and escape with his family to America. The Nazis wasted no time ransacking his gallery.
4: I mean, they took absolutely everything, not just the art, but they took the mirrors off the walls and the chairs and, you know, absolutely everything.
1: Paul had hidden much of his art in secure locations, including a bank safe outside of Bordeaux. But in 1941, the Nazis found that too.
4: They kept minutes of breaking into the safe, all of the works and the measurements of everything that they took from that safe, which was over 450
1: works. Among those 450 works was Seated Woman by Henri Matisse. It's an extraordinary painting of a woman wearing a patterned Romanian blouse. She sits on a leather chair, her face a very picture of calm introspection. Her eyes are cast to the side as if distracted by a memory from her past, as if she's daydreamed away all the decades spent out of the limelight. Flattened areas of colour and bold floral patterns contrast in Matisse's trademark style.
4: We had absolutely no clue where it was, none.
1: Until it was found, rolled up, in a tomato crate, in the home of a Munich recluse.
4: I got a call from somebody at Focus magazine. We think we found a Matisse that belongs to your family.
1: Focus is a German magazine that broke the story of the Girlit discovery in 2013. The Rosenbergs had listed their missing art on the Art Loss Register, a publicly accessible database of stolen art.
4: And I said, what, Matisse says it, and he says, oh, um, it's a woman.
1: Marianne finally saw an image of the painting when it flashed up in full colour on CNN. She knew immediately it was one of her grandfathers.
4: Oh, my goodness, this is is beautiful and it's indisputably ours. And a very strong rush of emotion to saying, I really wish my grandfather was here. I really wish my father was here. Because it would have meant so much to both of them.
1: The Rosenbergs weren't the only New York family to have a personal connection to the Gurlitt Horde. My dad was a tremendous
5: storyteller. And as I think is the case with most storytellers, sometimes the line between fact
1: and fiction gets blurred. Peter Torren's dad David survived the Holocaust by escaping to Sweden in the nick of time. At the age of 13, David Torren was on one of the last kinder transports, trains that delivered Jewish children out of Nazi Germany. Growing up in New York, Peter had heard countless stories of the life his dad left behind. He did describe
5: his uncle Friedman about his estate, about his beautiful house growing up, I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, Dad, so what, what, what
1: was the real story? Uncle Friedman's lavish house featured walls lined with paintings by the greatest artists of the age, including Pissarro, Corbey, and Rousseau. But there was one painting Peter's dad remembered especially well, a large tableau of two horseback riders on the North Sea painted by the German-Jewish artist Max Lieberman. Two Riders on the Beach, painted at the height of Lieberman's powers in 1901, has long been considered one of his finest works. The two riders are cantering along a flat beach on an overcast day. They're not even looking at us and seem about to leave the picture frame itself in a cleverly lopsided composition which makes the painting look like a snapshot. But behind that sense of spontaneity, there's a beautifully calculated palette of juicy blues and browns, flecked with whites and greys. That was the painting that he really, really, really remembered quite, quite well. David's memory was connected to the forced sale of Uncle Friedman's home to a Nazi general in 1938.
5: And my father had a very strong recollection sitting there for a number of hours, four or five hours, let's say, um, waiting for the sale to go through. And during the entire time, he was seated there and he was staring at two riders on the
1: beach. Peter's father left Germany and ended up in New York. For 70 years, the painting was gone from their lives until one day, it suddenly reappeared. Once the
5: painting was actually discovered, and was on the front page of the New York Times. It was a very emotional thing.
1: Now that the Torrens and Rosenbergs knew that their family's looted art had been rediscovered, they wanted it back. They had ample proof the art was theirs. So they filed their claims with the German government and waited. And waited.
4: I thought they all behaved pretty, pretty poorly. Uh, Instead of saying up front and first, anything that's looted must be returned and we will do that promptly and, you know, here we are. Uh, We filed our, our claim and then it went dead silent.
1: The families knew that getting their paintings back would not be straightforward. What they didn't realise was just how long it would take and how little support they'd get from the German government.
2: The German government, despite doing so much to right the wrongs of Warburg War II, really bungled their handling of investigating the Gurlitt trove. David Torin, owner of Two Riders, which got restored, said to me before he passed away, It's almost like they're waiting for for these survivors to die, is the most cynical way you could think of it.
1: The problem was the law, or lack of one. There's no German law that says you have to give Nazi looted art back. There had been one after the war, but it had expired.
2: The key thing legally in this case is that the statute of limitations for being legally required to return Nazi-looted art expired in the 70s.
1: After the war, it was assumed that claims of looted property would be resolved in 25 years. And many were. But not all of them. It wasn't so easy for families to find their lost art or prove its provenance. Survivors were scattered across the globe. Ownership documents were either destroyed or gathering dust in obscure archives, and art collections weren't digitised or easy to access. Not to mention that some art, like the paintings in the Girlit hoard, remained hidden for much longer than 25 years. In the absence of laws, the problem required a political solution, but nobody in power wanted to touch it.
2: Merkel refused to comment on this story. She just stayed completely out of it.
1: Mary Lane is talking about Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany.
2: And her supposed rationale was that, you know, this was a regional situation that Bavaria needed to handle. The regional people were saying, you know, look, if you want to fix the system, you know, you've got to fix it at the at the national level. And everyone was passing the blame around. I think.
1: German officials at all levels hid behind their rules. In the end, it was not the courts or the government, but Cornelius Gerlitt himself, who dictated what happened next. In the spring of 2014, the Rosenberg family decided to take matters into their own hands.
4: Our representative then wrote a letter in German to Cornelius Gurlitt himself and said he was very sorry for all the adverse press that Cornelius Gurlitt was getting and how distressing it was, but the Rosenberg family would very much like this piece of work back. And it was actually received very favorably by Gurlitt
1: Nearing the end of his life, Cornelius Gerlitt wanted to try to repair the damage to his family's reputation. He agreed to return any art deemed to be looted. It was a breakthrough. Almost two years after the Rosenbergs and the Torrens filed their claims, Matisse's seated woman and Max Lieberman's two riders on the beach were finally given back to the families. The first time I was
5: really kind of emotional about it, was when I actually saw the painting for the first
1: time. Because of the number of heirs in the Torren family, they agreed to sell the painting at Sotheby's and share the proceeds. Before the hoopla of the auction, Peter Torren and his son Ben were allowed to spend a few moments alone with two riders on the beach. Here's Ben. It really was incredible
3: because... My family's history had always had, to this point, completely existed within my grandfather's stories. Seeing the painting provided a a deeper understanding because it it was tangible. It was the first real tangible piece
5: of my family's history that I've ever been able to touch. Standing next to something that was at one time Part of my family
1: was was very very overwhelming. Peter's father David never got the chance to see the painting again. By the time it was returned, he was completely blind. And last spring, David died of COVID. He was ninety four years old. What was motivating him,
5: apart from wanting to recover art that belonged to his family, was a true sense of justice. My father really, really believed in justice with all his might and all his heart. Miss him every day.
1: Miss him every day. For Marianne, the return of Seated Woman is just one fight in an ongoing battle to reclaim all of her family's stolen art.
4: It falls under the claim of justice. It falls under... Uh, the claim of history it falls under for me the honor for my grandfather Um, you know out of the 67 paintings uh, that are still missing I'm assuming that some of them what percentage I couldn't tell you were destroyed during the war but the rest are still out there and for so long as they're out there we will pursue them
1: On May the 6th, 2014, Cornelius Gurlit died at home of heart failure. He was 81. His funeral was a quiet affair, attended by his lawyers, distant cousins and a few officials. Not a single friend. He was buried beside his father in the family grave.
2: Was he a victim or was he a perpetrator? I kind of think he was both.
3: I think his life was stolen by his father. I think he really believed that
4: these paintings were, were his by descendants of his family and that, you know, uh, they came and they took all this away from him.
1: The German government held Cornelius's seized art for over two years, but they never charged him with a crime. In the end, they agreed to give him back the art that wasn't looted but he died before that could happen. While the Rosenbergs and the Torrens were able to reclaim their stolen art, many, many families haven't been as lucky. As I mentioned earlier, there are roughly 100,000 pieces of looted art still missing. And one by one, they keep turning up. Hardly a month goes by without Jewish descendants of Holocaust victims making a claim on a piece of art that surfaces in a museum or at an auction house.
4: When somebody makes a claim, the immediate reaction is a knee-jerk reaction of saying, no, it's ours, you can't have it back.
2: And that is a real tragedy that we're in no better position legally or policy-wise, than we were when this case
1: broke. For justice to be done, attitudes, and crucially, laws, need to change.
2: We can't physically give back someone's life, tragically, but we can give back to these families an object that meant so much to their relatives who tragically perished in the Holocaust. And that's something that the entire art community needs to come together and do, not only in Germany, but in Austria, in Russia, in Britain and in the United States. It is important to
3: finally right this last wrong of World War II.
1: In the end, most of the artwork from the Gurlit Horde sits in a little museum in the Swiss capital Bern.
2: And he, as a big bleep you, to Germany, decided to donate it to Switzerland.
1: Cornelius donated his entire estate to the museum, but agreed that any art proven to be looted could be returned. Out of more than 1,500 individual works, 500 pieces were considered suspicious. But as of now, only 14 artworks, yes, one four have been returned to heirs. In the meantime, the museum continues the challenging work of provenance research. In 2017, curators organised an exhibition of the Gurlit hoard so the public could finally see these controversial artworks displayed together for the first time. The artwork is certainly notorious. But as I flipped through the catalogue myself, I tried to see it with fresh eyes. And I felt overwhelmed by the quality and the comprehensiveness of Gerlitz's art hall. To be honest, I felt emotional. And I wasn't thinking immediately about everything which Jews like me had lost. Quite the contrary. I was reminded why I had fallen in love with modern German art while still a teenager. And why I still love it today. Because it reminded me of another Germany. In fact, the other Germany. German history is not just about Hitler, the Nazis and the evil they did. There's also the Germany of artistic inventiveness, sexual liberation and social inclusiveness. The Germany whose art was once collected by Jews the Germany that my family was once so proud to be citizens of. (music) Next time on Art Bust, scandalous stories of the art world... What does a picture of Kim Kardashian and a multi-million-dollar antiquity smuggling ring have in common? The story of the golden coffin of Nedja Monk, of course. Kim Kardashian is not my
5: thing, um, but photographs of this particular gala went, and I can't believe I'm using this word in the world of antiquities, went viral.
1: An antiquity showcased in the world famous Egyptian collection at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and shared across the world on Instagram, turns out to have been stolen during the Arab Spring. But how did something so conspicuous, a golden coffin, get from Egypt to the famous Met Gala in New York? This episode was senior produced by Ainsley Vogel and Debbie Pacheco. Produced by Sarah Winter and myself. Our associate producer is Jacob Lewis. Mix and sound design by Mitchell Stewart and Philip Wilson. Our executive producers are Kathleen Goldhar, Katrina Onstad, Stuart Cox, and Jago Lee. Our USG audio team includes Jessica Grimshaw, Josh Block, Jennifer Sears, and Daniel Welsh. I'm your host, Ben Lewis. This is an Antica Productions podcast in collaboration with USG Audio. For more information, go to usgaudio.com.